the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Maybe I should say welcome back to the show, except it's me that's been gone and not you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything you need only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you live outside the San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, and I assume the streets have been busy out there, um, the safest way to do it is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Four days since I've done a program, I might forget how to do this, so please be patient with me. Hope you had a great Christmas. We did here. Our Christmas Eve service was absolutely brilliant. We do something here at Calvary Chapel that's different from any place else I know. Uh, My purpose is to um, let people share their heart. What's God doing in their life? And especially, um, I try to find people prayerfully who, um, who've been going through some hard times and yet they've triumphed. They've thrived in spite of the difficulties. And we had three 10 minute, um, messages, um, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, and, oh, it was just absolutely brilliant. You can watch it at calvaryessay.com if you want to be encouraged. Uh, if you're going through something difficult and you think, well, how can I get through this? Uh, listen to them. Uh, Trina and Pat and Clint, uh, it's just been a great, great um, opportunity for them to share the goodness of God. So that's what's going on here. Uh, just to give you some scheduling heads up, um, we're going to be, uh, uh, tomorrow night, church will be regular here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be doing Psalm 84. And then uh, there will be no Friday night service. And there will also, because KSLR will be closed, no Friday night or Monday, the day after the New Year's weekend. Uh, there'll be no Monday programs live. It'll be just like this week. And then the next day will come and we'll be back on the normal schedule. So let's get to questions while we await your phone calls and any questions that you might have. Here's the first one. It is from John. Uh, he says, hi, Pastor Ron. Happy New Year. Oh, that's right. I didn't say Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all of you as well. Um, his question is about uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Here's the question. Am I reading this verse correctly? Within the context of the first nine chapters and 90% of the tenth, my sense is that Solomon is being sarcastic here. I don't sense him endorsing fasting, drinking, or making lots of money. 
Uh, it seems as though this verse is a sardonic, great word, John, a sardonic musing on the world's belief system, a slight variant of the hedonistic creed, or am I missing something? John, the context of Ecclesiastes is simple. It is a book. It's Solomon's testimony. You know, Solomon, of course, the, the smartest man and the wisest, by the way, two different things, um, who has ever lived, given given wisdom by God. Um, Solomon didn't finish well. Uh, Solomon uh, fell to the temptations of his flesh. Uh, he multiplied horses. He multiplied wives. The two things God said will get you in trouble. And as smart as he was, he wasn't smart enough to listen to God and say no to his flesh. And basically... Ecclesiastes is a book that's written by Solomon in his old age. And he's looking back at a life that largely has been wasted. Uh, He lived the life of the rich. He was the richest man that's ever lived uh, for the time that he lived in. And, And he's basically wasted it all. And the book of Ecclesiastes is basically a summary of his life. I denied myself nothing. There was no pleasure. There was no wisdom that I didn't search out. Um, There was nothing. And he really didn't deny himself any opportunity. And the result was uh, an empty life. And over and over you'll see, and I like the King James rendering, vanity. It's all vanity. Uh, Literally, the word means a chasing after the wind. And we know we can never corral the wind. So he's saying it all turned out empty. I tried everything that I could think of to find out uh, knowledge, to find out, to to pursue fun, to pursue carnal pleasure, uh, to pursue education, and it all turned out empty. Everything apart from God is vanity or chasing away the wind. So what he was doing in this chapter, uh, he's leading up to the conclusion in in the book, and in, in this chapter, he's simply saying, this is the kind of life that I led that was empty. All these things that I did, I, 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 I had feast after feast. Um, we drank wine abundantly. I had all the money for everything, believing that it was all the answer. And John, the result was it all turned out empty. And Ecclesiastes has great value for us because it's really Solomon's book of repentance. Now, for you and for me, John, for everybody listening, the value in that book is not waiting till we're old until we find out that we're wasting time. To apply the lessons that were learned by a man uh, through his youth, his vigor, his strength, and his enormous wealth. Apply that wisdom that he shared at the end in our lives today so that we don't waste any more time. Solomon was a man who wasted his life one of the sad stories in our Old Testament, a man who started so well, a man who could have asked God for anything, and instead of asking to be rich or instead of asking to be powerful, he asked for wisdom to be God's representative. And then he blew it. Then he blew it. So, John, that's what was going on in Ecclesiastes. Uh, It would be hard. I I mean, God made promises to David about Solomon. We know David would be in heaven. But it would be hard, um, looking at Solomon's life, to say that he didn't blow it. He got carried away into idolatry by his foreign wives instead of being the spiritual head of his many houses. Um, uh, He let them do what they wanted. And, of course, all of those um, pagan wives brought in their pagan gods, and he didn't stop it. And um, Solomon was super, super accountable. He's one of those guys that had everything in this life, probably is happy to be a servant in heaven. Thank you for the question, John. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from, uh, this one is from Louis. I read in Zechariah chapter 10, um, verses 1 through chapter 11, verse 17. Uh, In these chapters, I see references to Jesus. For example, from Judah will come the cornerstone. I'm a bit confused because God is saying he is going to rescue his people. Yet he also says he's going to turn them over to useless shepherds. Am I right in understanding that God is saying for a time I'm turning you over to worthless shepherds, but in time I will bring the good shepherd who will save you? Uh, Let me stop there because there's a couple of other questions here. But that's exactly what he's saying. 
Uh, every time God turned them over to enemies, it was because of their willful disobedience. And by the way, all of that was declared by God directly to them when he gave them the law. On the Mount of Cursing and Blessing, um, um, he pronounced both curses and blessing, blessing for those who follow God and cursings for those who do not. So this wasn't anything at all that was um, um, or should have been a surprise to them. Additionally, uh, the shepherds, we're not talking about shepherds, he's talking about his kings. If you look at the list of kings, both north and south, if you combine them all, uh, 90% of the kings were bad kings. And the idea, and Americans, we need to hear this, the idea is that we get the leadership that we deserve. And because of their sin, God, instead of having a man after his own heart, he gave them men that had their only their own hearts to value. So that's what he's talking about. He turns them over as an act of judgment, but he's always promising, as he did to David, that there would forever be a, a king coming from the line of David that would sit on the throne of Judah. So is shepherding, you ask, is the shepherding an actual flock of sheep? As an illustration, or is he talking metaphorically? Uh, he's talking metaphorically. Uh, one more question says here in Revelation 18. It talks about the fall of Babylon, the great city. I can't help but see the resemblance to America when it talks of a land living in great luxury and the merchants of the land weeping because no one is left to buy their goods. Uh, we are the greatest consumer of goods at this point. Could this be referring to America? Not specifically, um, um, Louis. In, in Revelation 18, uh, Babylon, the fall of Babylon, it's, it's the fall of the great city of the day during the Great Tribulation. But it's not just the city physically. It is religious Babylon, um, the den of harlots, spiritually speaking, and business, economic Babylon that's going to fall as well. Your application, however, is wonderful here because this is exactly what the United States of America needs to be concerned about. We have been blessed by God. Now, we... we I get tired of people say, well, America is a Christian nation. It's not, and it never has been. There were Christians. God always had his people in key places. But this nation has never been a Christian nation, and yet God blessed us abundantly. Now, there's two reasons that he blessed us. One is America would later end up being Israel's protector. In 1948, without the United States of America, there would be no return of God's people to Israel as he promised. The Valley of Dry Bones, those bones would come to life. Israel came to life. And, um, you know, as the United States role, uh, and we did it well for a very, very long time. But the, the result now is we've turned away from Israel. Um, they, they're more of a problem to us than a blessing. That's, that's unfortunate that that's the view. Uh, and we've lost our concern at all for anything of God. Uh, our nation has been given over to sexual perversion. Our world uh, has rebelled against God so dramatically that uh, there isn't anyone who can deny that, that, that America has turned its back completely on God. We produce more pornography. I'm just talking about the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles produce more pornography than the rest of the world combined. What do we do with our great wealth? That's what we do. We don't use our money to take care of people. We use our money for all kinds of different reasons. And uh, America, um, I believe, is absent completely from the end-time scenario. And there can only be two reasons. My hopeful reason is that there will be a great revival in this country before Jesus comes for his church. And I say I'm hopeful, that's what I want to have happen, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think the real reason America has fallen into insignificance, not even meriting a mention in the book of Revelation or in the end-time scenarios of prophets, uh, is because we've sent ourselves out of the presence of God. Just like Rome did. You know, Rome was never defeated militarily as an empire. Rome sent itself into irrelevance. And that's what America, the once great land that we love so much, that's what America has devolved into. And um, we need to own it. We need to own it. And by the way, this is not a, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray kind of thing. 
Uh, we need a move of God's Spirit in this country. The church needs to be the church. The church needs to stand up for Jesus Christ in these horrible days. We need to stand up for what's wrong and what's right, what's moral and what's immoral. And sadly, what's happening instead is that much of the church is accepting of the standards of this world and accommodating within their religious system a faith that has no boundaries. And that's a faith that isn't really a faith at all. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous one from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. Last Wednesday, I asked you what you plan on doing for Christmas. You told me, among other things, is that you really don't do the present thing. (laughs) I did tell you that, I remember. Uh, So I was curious, is there any reason why you don't do presents? Or maybe I misunderstood you. This year, my husband and I bought each other gifts, and and I was blessed by them. But I know Christmas is not all about presents. Is that more of a financial reason to not give presents or a conscious decision you and Mama Paula have made together? Thank you in advance. Love you. Um, Thanks for asking the question. I don't like anything to be understood. Certainly, Paula deserves all kinds of gifts. But Paula and I, we started a long time ago. And I think even before I was saved, this was sort of preparation for me being a believer. Um, um, You know, uh, I, I used to like to spoil Paula. Um, now, I did it because I was guilty, okay? I mean, I had a guilty conscience, and she understood that. I'd buy her things. And, and so the gifts really didn't mean that much. Um, what we do now, and um, uh, I did not buy Paula a gift, nor did she buy me a gift um, for Christmas. Um, what, what we do now is, you know, when she wants something and when she needs something, we go get it. Same thing is true. And uh, what we try to do is not to establish any particular significance to a day or to a holiday. Um, um, Valentine's Day, that kind of nonsense. We just don't do it. If we're not treating each other kindly, if we're not loving one another, uh, if we're not providing what people, what the other needs or, or, or when reasonable to do uh, what we want, um, then then we're not really a, a, a marriage that's rightly representing the Lord at all. So we don't do presents because it's so much more freeing just to be there for one another. Um, you and your husband bought each other gifts? That's wonderful. I've had ladies in the church come to me and say, when I say, well, yeah, we don't really do anniversaries or Valentine's Day or Christmas gifts. I've had ladies say, stop saying that. I don't want my husband to hear it. I get that. Uh, and you should be blessed by the gifts and by the kindness of your husband and him by your kindness. Um, but all we have to do is remind ourselves that Christmas isn't about the material things. Um, um, that's all. It doesn't have anything to do with the financial reason. Uh, we just give each other gifts when we have the opportunity to do it or when the need arises. Actually, Paul and I, uh, we like to go shopping together. I mean, we, we, uh, we, we, it has to be warm, but we like, we like to go out and, and, uh, and, and shop sometimes. So, um, we just enjoy each other's presence. Thank you very, very much for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. This one is from Kevin from our email inbox. It says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my question. I'm very confused about the rapture. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where Christ mentions we will escape from trouble. In Luke 22, verse 36 through 38, Jesus had his disciples, or told his disciples, rather, to prepare because they will face trouble after his death. If he didn't rapture his own disciples, why would we be different? If you can please explain what scriptures line up with Christians being raptured before his return, I appreciate your answer. Kevin, this is a long answer. I'm going to try to give it to you uh, in in the short version. Um, You're right about Jesus saying, in this world you will have tribulation. But there's a big, big, big difference between tribulation and the great tribulation. They're not even connected. Tribulation just means the kind of troubles that we all have. We all get sick. We all uh, struggle with relationships. We struggle with working. We struggle with all kinds of things. And, and Christians certainly do not ever escape 
that kind of tribulation uh, in the first century church uh, to, to whom uh, Luke was writing. They, they, were, they were risking their lives to be Christians. So there was all kinds of troubles and persecution going on in the world. And Jesus said that's just part and parcel. And in fact, Jesus told his disciples, uh, you know, go get a sword. You haven't needed a sword. Well, I'm with you, but I'm going to go. So go get a sword and get ready. And what he was really saying is that things are going to get tough. In the first century, um, Caesar Nero martyred tens of thousands of Christians. That's tribulation. But keep in mind, none of that is the great tribulation. The great tribulation is a time described from the Old Testament through the book of Revelation as a time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. So the great tribulation focuses on Israel. That's what Jacob means. Um, uh, it is a time described as as uh, nothing like it ever happening before, nor ever again after it. That's how terrible it is. Jesus said the days will be so terrible that if they hadn't been shortened by God, even the elect would be destroyed. In other words, if Jesus didn't come before the end of the Great Tribulation, if that was allowed to continue, nobody on earth would have survived it. That's how bad it was. So, Kevin, the rapture deals with that time, God's wrath or God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Now, scriptures. For those who sleep, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, the key is verse 9. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Here's the key. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. And remember, this whole context is the rapture of the church, the coming of Christ. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to reap salvation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he talks about that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. That's a proof text. Jesus' word to the church at Philadelphia. It is a prophecy. The letters are prophecies. And uh, uh, we'll be removed. He says in the Gospel of John that we should uh, pray that we be counted worthy to escape the judgment that's going to come on all those who live on the, the entirety of the of the earth. So in that day of great tribulation, we cannot be here. And here's why. Because God can't judge us who are innocent. Genesis chapter 18 and 19. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel grabbed Lot and said, you've got to get out of here. I cannot do anything until you're free from this place, until you're safely away from this place. And that was bringing judgment. Well, in the same way, the Great Tribulation clearly throughout the Bible, is God's wrath. Kevin, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. God's not angry with us. He's not angry with us. He can't judge us because our sin has already been judged. And you remember that Abraham started negotiating with Jesus in chapters 18 and 19. He said, look, what about if there are 50 righteous and 40 righteous and 30 righteous? He went all the way down to just a few. And Jesus said, no, if there are some righteous there, then I will not judge them. The problem is there's no one righteous. And of course, judgment came. The same thing is going to happen. It will be inaugurated by the the um, rapture of the church. Uh, and then the whole world, Jesus said, it will be like in the days of Noah, where every inclination of men's heart was only evil all the time. Uh, let me suggest this for you, Kevin. Go to our website, calvarysa.com. Go to Revelation chapter 4, and the first Bible study that I do uh, in that chapter is always a detailed teaching on the rapture, which discusses some of these very things, but also gives you the pictures of the rapture that uh, were provided for us uh, throughout the Old Testament. The rapture was a mystery revealed by the Apostle Paul. Jesus hinted at it, but never talked about it. The Great Tribulation deals with Israel. The church will not be here. And then, of course, there will be a great, great, great revival that goes on uh, in the last days on that very issue. Kevin, thank you very, very much. We've only got a couple minutes. Let's see what I've got here for 
a quick question. Oh, that's not a quick one, so let me find another quick one. Um, Justin says, How important is bad language? I ask because my generation, including me, uses words, especially the F word, without really meaning anything by it. Justin, it is more important than I can communicate. And you ask this question because the Holy Spirit is knocking at your heart, saying, you know better than this. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're not supposed to be like the people in this world. And Justin, if that filth comes out of your mouth and you claim to belong to Jesus Christ, then your entire witness is compromised. And instead of being a light for Jesus Christ, you're reflecting upon him rather than being a reflection of him. Uh, no coarse jesting, uh, no foul language, coarse language is to come out of our mouths. Our language is supposed to be that which honors the Lord. So it doesn't matter if it's accepted by your whole generation. I can tell you, Justin, it is not okay with God. And you've got to decide right now, are you going to please Jesus or are you going to be like everybody else in the world? And if this is bothering you, you need to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to keep repeating it. And in the process, your heart's going to grow harder and harder and harder. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We have 30 minutes left in our program, 340-9585. We'd love to have your calls or toll-free 877-380-5757. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program uh, 340-9585 you can tell how rusty i am doing this program i forgot that one of the phone numbers that never happens as we signed off last time oh well Here is our first question for this half. Michael from our email inbox says, In Mark 11, 13 and 14, why would Jesus curse the fig tree for not having figs when it wasn't even the season for figs? What was he trying to teach? That we as disciples should produce fruit in season and out of season. Do we get harsh discipline by Jesus when we don't produce fruit? Because later the fig tree was withered to its roots. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your for the, the compliment, Michael. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, a couple of things. And by the way, I love your application on that. I'm a preacher, and I, I, I never once um, um, thought of that, you know, that, that we should produce fruit in season and out of season. I didn't make that application. But that would be a good one. I might steal that one day, Michael. Um, But the real reason for cursing the fig tree, uh, it's an important lesson. I believe that it was what I call a living sermon illustration. Uh, Jesus had the day before, as you know, been in Jerusalem, sort of checking things out. Remember, he knew everything that was going to happen. He rode into Jerusalem. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, but, but Jesus knew those were empty praises. Those of us who worship God with ugly hearts or disobedient hearts, we ought to remember this. They were empty phrases. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people. And he knew that most of those people would be shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas in just a matter of days. And so he, he looked and it looked to all the world like he was being hailed as the Christ and everybody was happy but that wasn't the case we will not have this man rule over us he knew that was what their where their heart was then he looked in the temple courts area and he saw that his father's house a house that was supposed to be for prayer had been turned into a den of thieves and he would think how could this happen It would break his heart. Imagine the house that your father reserved for prayer and for taking care of the poor was a place where neither occurred 
And then, of course, he would see the ever-presence of the religious leaders with their long, flowing robes and beards and looking religious, supposedly being God's representatives to the people. And instead, they were ripping the people off. And their hearts were so ugly that they were plotting the murder of God himself. And I can't imagine a more difficult day for Jesus. Well, that evening, he goes out to Bethany, has some rest, gets up in the morning. And Michael, he's just hungry. It's time for breakfast. He wants to eat, and he sees a fig tree. Even though it wasn't the season for figs, Usually when you see a leafy fig tree, there are figs on it. Now, Paul and I, we at our old house, we had a fig tree. I mean, it's a, it's a Charlie Brown fig tree in, in, in the off-season. But in the season, when, when the figs are there, it's so leafy and so bulky. And Jesus saw the leaves, and he had hope for a little bit of fruit, just because he was hungry. And I always picture Jesus sort of reaching in with his hand, trying to find a piece of fruit, and there wasn't any. And that's when he cursed it. Now, I believe, Michael, that he was trying to demonstrate his disciples that this is what happens with religion. The empty religion that you saw in the streets of Jerusalem yesterday. That's what this fig tree represents. I mean, the religious leaders looked fruity. They had their robes on. They had their phylacteries on. They had their pomegranates hanging down from the bottom of their robes. The the crowd that he heard shouting Hosanna, they knew who he was. And yet they were content with just the appearance of being excited about it. They really weren't ready to accept Jesus for who he was. And of course, the temple, as beautiful, as magnificent it was, it looked like a place where God lived. But he was absent there. And I think what he was saying to the fig tree is, curse me, you never bear fruit again. And the disciples were shocked. I think Jesus was saying, this is what happens with empty religion. This is what happens when you chase God out of church. This is what happens when you're doing your thing instead of God's thing. and Michael, I think for all of us, some 2,000 years after the fact, there's a lot of fruitless churches. Churches that look magnificent, they're beautiful. People that walk in those churches, many times they're all dressed up. But their lives are a mess. And I think Jesus is saying, empty fruit tree, empty fruit. And I think that was the demonstration that he was providing for his disciples. Thank you for the question, Michael. I appreciate it very, very much. That is a an incident that causes a lot of confusion. I remember really, really prayerfully digging into that as a fairly new believer because that just seems so out of character. Why would Jesus do that? Was he having a, a, a temper tantrum? And of course, we know the answer is no. Thanks for the question. Here is a question from Barbara. She asks, why are there so many occasions in the Gospels where Jesus tells people not to tell what he did for them? You know, Barbara, that sounds counterintuitive to us. You would think Jesus would heal somebody and say, go tell everybody what I did. But remember, Jesus was on a tight timeline. Jesus was on a schedule. And his hour had not yet come. And so he didn't want the people to try to take him by force to be, make him to be king. And that's what they were trying to do. There were times when Jesus would slip through the crowds supernaturally as unnoticed um, when everybody was looking for him. There were other times when he would go out all by himself just to get away from those crowds because the crowds wanted him, but they wanted him for all the wrong reasons. And when they saw the miracles and the power and they heard him teach with such authority, they were ready for him to become their king right now. Let's get rid of Rome. And Jesus said, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Interesting thought here, Barbara. Jesus had to appear in Jerusalem the day we call Palm Sunday, Triumphal Entry Sunday. On the exact day prophesied by Daniel the prophet, 
in chapter 9 of his prophecy. 173,880 days after the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know that from Nehemiah 2. We know that was 445 B.C. 173,880 days. If Jesus didn't show up on that day, or if he showed up before, imagine if he showed up like two two months before and said, hey, I'm here, nobody's here, there's no crowd. Uh, he, 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 he would have proven that the prophecy was false. So he had a schedule to keep. And everything that he did in his three-plus-year ministry that we read about in the Gospel accounts, all of that was to sort of whet the people's spiritual appetite for the things that Christ would do, but not for more of the things, but for more of him. And they just didn't do that, so Jesus said to people, don't tell them. He also, Barbara, you remember, uh, told them, um, uh, told the demons to be quiet, don't tell anybody. They would say, we know who you are, you are the Lord Most High, what have you come to do with us, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus would tell them, be quiet, shh. So he had a time schedule to keep, and he wasn't going to let the crowds influence that time schedule. He was always and only doing what he saw his father do and only saying what he heard his father say. 340-9585. Here is a question from Jake. Uh, in Matthew 13, does the pearl of great price refer to Jesus? Um, you know, Jake, there's, there's a lot of bad biblical hermeneutics that people will, will will come up with to say that Jesus is the pearl of great price. We need to sell everything that we have in order to buy it. We can't buy Jesus. No. And this is the beautiful thing, Jake. The pearl of great price is you and me. It's the people. Jesus in the story is the merchant. He's the one searching the world for great pearls. It's interesting that the the background on this, you know, Jews were pearls were unclean. They came from oysters, which are unclean, and so they they didn't value pearls at all. Gentiles, however, and especially powerful Gentiles, Gentile kings, um, they 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 highly treasured pearls, and literally they would send merchants all over the world looking for these treasures and these pearls were the greatest that the the king with the biggest pearl um, that was sort of symbolic of the richest or the most powerful king and so they would send their merchants all over the world looking for these huge pearls gentiles were the pearl non-jews and when i like uh, the most, Jake, about uh, the parable of the Pearl of Great Price is that um, it says when he found one of great value in Jesus' parable, when he found one of great value, he sold everything he had. What that means is, Jake, if you were the only one who ever would have said yes to Jesus, he still would have died on the cross. And of course, we know God the Father sold everything he had. He emptied the vault of heaven, I like to say, by sending his son to die for our sins. And the the reason is because we are that pearl of great price. Good question, Jake. Thanks very, very much. Uh, Andre asks a good question. Does our faith need a literal Adam and Eve in order to be authentic? The answer, Andre, is yes, absolutely, 100%. If Adam and Eve were not real, then our Bible is worthless. If Adam and Eve were not the first two people to ever live, and that's why this teaching about um, uh, you know Neanderthal men and 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 you know we've all seen the the the, the scales where um, man starts walking on fours and and then slowly over the the millions and millions of years um, he he walks upright. Um, if Adam and Eve were not the very first two human beings, then Jesus is a liar. If Jesus is a liar, then we don't have a Savior. We're lost in our sins. So yes, our faith needs a literal Adam and Eve for a Christian to say, well, you know, God could have used evolution. That might be what he did. And everybody knows evolution's true. That's not true. You've got a decision to make, Andre. In the beginning, God, that's the first four words of our Bible. 
And if that's not true, then we can't trust anything else in our Bible. And Jesus identified a real Adam and a real Eve. And if he did that wrongly, a God, real God can't make mistakes. If he did it to fool us, then he's just being evil with us. So yes, um, we need a literal Adam and Eve in order to be authentic. Now, I've been challenged by people saying, well, you know, we're just checking our brain in at the door. You know, we have to be thinking Christians. Well, we also have to be Christians who walk by faith and not by sight. Let me ask a question for anybody who thinks that. How many times in just your lifetime, doesn't matter whether you're 10 years old or 100 years old, that's how old I am, how many times has science been proven wrong? Something that they were so certain about. There was no debate about it when they said, oops, we found new stuff. Our Bible's never changed. And I want to repeat this, Andre. If Adam and Eve were not real, if they weren't literal, and if they weren't the first two humans ever to walk this earth, and certainly they weren't Neanderthals, if they weren't perfect in every way, then it's silly to be a Christian. It's silly to be a Christian because there's no reward, there's no heaven. I'll go one step further and then we'll go on to another question. If the first 11 chapters of Genesis aren't literal, then every major doctrine of our New Testament church, every major doctrine of our New Testament church falls apart. And we have no theology. That's how important it is. Here is an anonymous question from our mobile app. Why don't prayer ministers go to the people requesting salvation instead of having them, instead of, I'm sorry, instead of them having to come up front, making it more likely they won't do it out of fear, and et cetera? That's a wonderful question, Anonymous. And I try when I'm giving invitations to explain that. Um, uh, two two things. One, um, we who are in ministry and looking out, we don't know who's um, requesting salvation. Um, you know, we we make it available to people, and and we we I'll say often, um, you know, our pastors and their wives will hang around after church if you need to, to pray with them to talk to them, then then they're going to be around. But we don't know what God is doing in somebody's heart. Now, that's the minor reason. The major reason is that faith has to conquer fear. Now, I don't think it's fear as much as it is embarrassment. You know, we, we especially we men, we're so proud. We don't want anybody to know that we've got issues, um, that, that we're not, we don't have it all together. Um, and so, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, I should have come up, Pastor Ron. By the way, almost every invitation that I give, People will come up to me afterwards and say, well, you know, I should have come up or, well, I, I was I was coming up in spirit, but I just, I was embarrassed to come up or, or, or I was afraid of what people would think. Um, but you see, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And anonymous, I'm just going to say this, point blank, faith requires public profession. That's what baptism is. It's a public profession of our faith. I'm not going to live for the old me anymore. I'm not going to live the old life anymore. I'm new in Christ. The old is gone. Well, when we're giving invitations, when people make that walk, in our church it's a short walk to the front, when they make that walk, what they're saying to everybody is, I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed. I've overcome my fear. I've overcome my shame. I've overcome my embarrassment. I'm just so desperate. I need Jesus. I did a message on, uh, uh, I think last Sunday, my Christmas message was, uh, not this Sunday, but the Sunday before. Um, um, You know, we've got to get to that place where we realize that we need to be saved. And there's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm a mess. I need to be saved. That's humility. That's honesty. And because you're afraid or because you're a little embarrassed or a little ashamed, um, we've got to decide, is Jesus worth 
suffering those things for. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. And public profession of our faith is critically important. Uh, this Sunday, uh, the first Sunday of the new year, here at Calvary Chapel will be Communion Sunday. And it's the only day here at our church that we don't have people come forward. Um, I tell people then, I give them the opportunity to come to the table, communion table, um, by giving their heart to Jesus Christ. Um, but then I tell people, look, if you if you gave your heart to Jesus today, you could do it privately right now, but if you do that, before you leave, tell somebody. Because I know the enemy is going to attack. And we've got to get over the fact that we're afraid or we're ashamed or we're embarrassed. Um, we've got to be honest and deal with Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul, Anonymous, he said, what he wants to do, he can't do. What he doesn't want to do, that's what he finds himself doing. And this is the Apostle Paul. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Even the Apostle Paul was out there open with regard to his shortcomings, his sin. We need to understand that when we hide sin, when we keep it private, we really are not surrendering our heart to Jesus Christ. I've had people, well, I gave my heart to Jesus, but it was quiet. And then I've had them grow in boldness and, and come up, even though they were already saved, because, well, they just wanted other people to know it. That's what it really is all about. So that's why we do it uh, in churches. Thank you. I appreciate the question. And if you're one who's struggling with uh, all of that, um, I want you to, to, to just imagine Jesus' smile as you overcome your fear or your embarrassment and you make that walk. Jesus' smile is all the reward you'll ever need. You know, a lot of churches, and, and, and ours isn't one, and I've, I've kind of kicked myself because I never started. Frankly, I just didn't think about it. But a lot of churches, um, um, when when they're giving invitations to people coming forward, the crowd is clapping. I like that. That's a, a safe environment. You, you know that the people are really happy for you. And, um, you know, I thought, why didn't we do that? And, and now we've just been doing it one way for so long that probably that's not going to happen. But I think it's a it's a wonderful welcome into the family of God and sort of takes away that edge of nerves if we do it. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. We're only about a little over four minutes left, so if you're going to call, do it quickly. Here's a question from Rob. Uh, Pastor Ron, if someone has already died, is it wrong to pray for their salvation? Yes, it is. Uh, it's wrong to pray for their salvation. Uh, you can pray to a merciful God who wants to be merciful, but is appointed in men to live, die once, and then be judged. So once they die, it's too late. The Catholic idea of purgatory is biblical nonsense. It doesn't exist. The idea that we're going to get a second chance in heaven is nothing but goosebump emotional Christianity because there isn't uh, any 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 opportunity. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When somebody dies rejecting Jesus Christ, um, uh, that's the, the, the unforgivable sin. So, yes, it's wrong to pray for their salvation. Now, here's what I would suggest you do, Rob, and I've got so many people that I pray for just like this. Lord, I'm not sure of their heart. I'm not sure of their heart. Please, God, I pray that they're with you and I'll see them again. But but even that's just not a, uh, oh, Lord, you can still save them. Give them another chance kind of prayer. Uh, it's it's too late. We've got to make the decision in this life where we're going to spend eternity. That's really, really important. Last question for today. Anonymous, if a professing Christian is now in a gay marriage, should he still be considered a part of the fellowship of believers? No, a thousand times no. Um, uh, remember, Christian is not what he or she professes. You'll know them by their fruit, the Bible says. And, and good fruit comes from the heart that's been converted. Uh, 
a, a man or woman involved in a sinful lifestyle continually is not really a Christian no matter what they say. So no, he shouldn't be considered a part of the fellowship of believers. And if there is somebody who, say, comes out of the closet, they've been going to a church for a long time, and everybody knows them and thinks they're saved, and then they come out as gay, um, and and um, um, you know they have to be dealt with. They've got to be as a professing Christian. We have to deal with them very, very directly, very firmly. And if we don't, then it's like Ichabod. The the, the glory has departed. God's church is a holy church. And and this isn't about this isn't about homosexuality. Somebody who's a drunk, you know, and if people are partying, people doing things that they know they shouldn't do, and they're professing Christians, then we're we're told to warn them once, to 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 maybe take a second shot at them, and then have nothing to do with them. If they're willfully disobeying God, then we're to cut them off. We just say, you know what? As a professing believer, you're making a mockery of our faith. And we're going to do what Paul suggested we do. We're going to hand that man or that woman over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. By the way, when Paul did that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a book written about six months after 1 Corinthians, the punishment inflicted upon the sinner served its purpose. He repented and was welcomed back into the fellowship. And remember, that's always the goal. So uh, if you've got professing Christians in gay marriages, you've got to confront them in love. Don't worry about what anybody says. You don't love them if you're not telling them what they're doing is wrong. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It has been a blast to be back. I will be back tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 640 The Word. Three, I'm going to give my phone. See, I'm out of practice. Hey, how about this? I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel, of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.